0: 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you can find that on page 965 of your pew Bible. We'll read all of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, would not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that your Spirit, that has given this word, would... Open up our hearts to receive it, to be strengthened by it, to grow in your grace and become more conformed to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have begun this work in us and you will continue to that final day. Lord, we look to you, our mighty Savior. Amen. Uh, Harrison Ford has... Is pretty popular in some of his movies. Of course, I was introduced to him in Star Wars, and then later uh, again saw him in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he's seen, he's, he has some of these gigantic blockbuster movies, but the movie that I like most that he did is a little movie called Regarding Henry. In this movie, he plays an attorney, a, a trial lawyer, who is despicable and ruthless. Not to say that other trial lawyers are that way, okay? Just saying he was that way. Mean-spirited, underhanded. He wasn't really out for justice. He was out for economic gain. He'd do anything to anybody to get it. And he was a philanderer, hated his wife, mistreated her, mean to her. So he's in this store pretty early in the movie you get a little glimpse of everything that he is and he's in this little uh, small Seven Eleven kind of store and a guy is robbing the store and he is gonna kind of full of himself a little bit and so he goes over and starts talking to this guy trying to explain to him why you need to put the gun down let's just calm down let's don't get this out of hand, you know. And suddenly, the guy just pulls up his little gun, shoots him in the head, bam. Well, he wakes up uh, uh, unable to walk, unable to speak, unable to do anything, and slowly goes through uh, rehabilitation. And he begins to be able to walk and talk. He comes home and has to be taught to read by even his daughter. But he gradually gets his strength back and his capacity to think back. He remembers nothing. His wife is a stranger to him. His daughter is a stranger. He remembers nothing of his former life. But the most remarkable thing about him is that in his new life, he becomes this affectionate, loving man who also loves justice and loves the truth. As they sent him to his office later on in the movie, just to kind of tool around and see what you can do, and he starts going around all of his files and is just devastated to see what he was, because he can tell what he did. And he starts working then to rectify and change everything he had done before. So you'd really have to say for Henry... There was a death to the old Henry, wasn't there? Nearly died completely physically. But he he died in a sense and he was raised, wasn't he, to a whole new life. And this is the Bible's picture of what happens in a believer's life. There's the critical need that we have, just like Henry. He was very much in need of the reconstruction of his life though we know he never would have changed outside of what happened to him. We will see in this passage have that same desperate need, and we must be changed as well. And God must enter into our lives radically to change us and to reveal to us his beauty and glory, or we will never, ever uh, welcome it, see it, love it, or conform to it. So we'll, we'll look first in this passage at the need for transformation, as it was in his life. And then we'll look at the present reality of that transformation. What does it look like, and what's the nature of this glory that we're conformed to? And then we'll look some at the final consummation or, or climax of this uh, glory. What's a little, bit of, a little bit of what it will look like when it's completed? because we 're and so we 're going to focus on verse eighteen and then just look at some other parts of the uh, chapter as we talk about verse eighteen, and I get the glory uh, the final glory when it says literally to transform into the same image from glory to glory that 's literally how it reads, and so it it has this sense of starting at one point and ending at a final point of uh, glory and perfection as stated in many other passages in Scripture. But first, the need for transformation. You catch this in this little phrase where he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, this comes as you've heard it read that the But Moses had a veil face, but this really represented and was a kind of picture of the veil over the hearts of the Israelites. They didn't want the glory of God. They refused the glory of God as evidenced by their idolatry, as evidenced by later their constant grumbling in the wilderness. And later they absolutely refused to go into the uh, promised land. They would not believe in the glory and goodness of God. They would not believe and and welcome His mercy, but they rejected Him. So there is this veil that prevented them from seeing and loving and adoring the glory of God. Paul goes on, if you look with me in chapter 4... To say that veil... Well, first, we did read that the veil still remains uh, on their hearts for this day. Verse 14, they read the Old Covenant. The veil's still there. But then he talks about his own gospel. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, "...even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing." In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul says, there is this beauty that comes forth from the gospel. He calls it the light of the gospel. And what is that light that comes forth from the gospel? It's the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of Christ. And so this this is an amazing beauty. It's the beauty of a God who would enter into the flesh and sacrifice himself for people. And sacrifice himself for sinners. It's an amazing story that there's this... That look, the true God is a hero God who sacrifices himself. This, this God is a God who is, uses his power to, to benefit those who are weak and helpless. What a God, what a revelation. There's glory that just burst out from the gospel. But he says, for the unbelieving, they don't see anything. It's foolishness, he says in another place to them. They just shrug their shoulders. And what? So what? I don't care. So the beauty, the sheer amazing beauty of God that breaks forth in the gospel of Christ... Is They're oblivious to it. And it says specifically that's because there's a veil. Why is that veil there? They're blinded by the God of this world. He's talking about Satan. There's a spiritual blindness, a spiritual bondage that prevents them from seeing this beauty. And so Paul describes how this happens that the gospel is revealed. And in verse 3 of our chapter... He has a striking statement where he says, you are a letter from Christ. He's talking about letters of commendation that he might write. He says, well, here's my letter of commendation. It didn't come from any person. It comes from Jesus. Jesus wrote this letter. That's that's my letter of commendation. Christ wrote this letter, and he did it not with ink, but he did it with the spirit of the living God. And he didn't do it like the f- God did in the Old Testament on tablets of stones. He did it on the tablets of human hearts. And that word human is better translated fleshly. For instance, in Romans 7, 14, Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly or carnal. He's distinguishing between the spiritual good nature of the law and his fleshly nature as an unbeliever. And so, it's saying that on a fleshly heart, okay, a heart lost, a heart broken, that's where God inscribes by the Spirit his new life. That's where God inscribes the glory of Christ. And in Jeremiah, it's interesting because Jeremiah, in chapter 31, talks about the new covenant. And in that new covenant, he says, the law is not just going to be external to you. He says, I'm going to write it on your hearts, which is a a vivid way to say, from the inside out, you're going to love me and you're going to love my will and want to to do my will. And... But earlier in Jeremiah, he describes the people's sin in this way. He says in Jeremiah 17, 1, The sin of Judah is written on their hearts. And he says, With an iron pen and a diamond point. So you, you get that feel that this was just etched into their hearts. Sin, deep and wide, uh, uh, the, the, the writ writing of sin into their life. I liken it to a wall that has repulsive obscenities and slanders and vulgarities written on it. There's the human heart. That's what Paul's saying. Yeah, that's, that was the writing on our heart. And you see, God, that's the only heart he can find, okay? A broken, ruined heart, defaced heart By sin, that's what he finds. And he comes by his Holy Spirit and begins inscribing glory into that heart. That's encouraging because it means no matter where you are, what you've done, how broken you are and lost, that has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't matter how dark and black your heart is. When God takes by the Spirit, begins to inscribe on your heart A new program, in a sense, is written. A new destiny is written. New desires are written. A new course for your life is written. It's done by the mighty power of God. He puts it in creation terms later in chapter 6 when he says this. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you see the purposeful reference to creation. Or how in the world can there be light in creation except that God just speaks it into being and there's light where there couldn't have been otherwise? And he says, same way in the human heart. You're blinded. Your heart is etched in sin, defaced, and he shines the glory of Christ into your heart. And so we are rewritten in that sense. And apart from that, our own efforts to change, our own effort to come to grips with God's word, God's law, as he says with the Israelites and he talks about this the difference of the letter and the spirit the letter kills but the spirit makes alive when the human heart comes up against the law of God it is not a pretty picture okay Paul talks about this in Romans 7 he says when the law comes to us the law is perfect it's good it's spiritual but when the law comes to me in my own sinfulness I just become more sinful I get worse I don't get better The law is like this tar baby because it condemns me and I try to obey it and I fail and it condemns me some more. Paul talks about it in Romans 8 as a treadmill of sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. So apart from his spirit, I have no capacity to obey that law. And the law in itself has no capacity to change me. The law just comes and sets before me the beauty of God's character in its commandments. And it's beautiful and good. The law is wonderful. Which one of you would want to grow up in a, in a home that is not governed by those principles? You want to grow up in a home that's governed by violence? That's run by constant adultery in your family, your parents? Or there's cheating in your, uh, and lying constantly? And there's stealing in your family. And there's covetousness and lust and desires for uh, substance abuse and all. Those are the families that are torn to pieces. You know that. I mean, the law is beautiful. It's good. And those are just the main parts of it. It, it. It has so much about it that's beautiful and good. But when that beautiful and good law hits our hearts, it's not good. Israel is an example in two directions. First, Israel showed its response to the law in its idolatry. I'm not going to have you. I'm going to refuse your law. And I'm going to live for myself and make my own gods. Then after the exile, they were exiled for their idolatry. After the exile, they were put away their idols and they were really careful to obey God. But then it ended up being the hypocrisy of Phariseeism. And in, and in this case, they so thought that they were obeying the law that they didn't need God's mercy, they didn't need His forgiveness, they didn't need to trust in God because they themselves were keeping the law and they were doing a good job with it. And you see, either one of those is our heart refusing the goodness and glory of God, either by licentiousness and lust and... and uh, and idolatry, or by so obeying the law, we don't need the mercy of God and the goodness and glory of God. Either way, we're rejecting God. That's the human heart with the law of God. And it's only when the Spirit begins to change us, when the Spirit begins to rewrite our hearts, when in the words of Ezekiel, he takes out the heart of stone and puts in us a heart of flesh, a living heart. Heart, a responsive heart uh, to his word. And so we trying to change ourselves, trying to just be different, better people, it's really a lot like plastic surgery. You know, we we see, we've seen many, many times, and you've seen it too, that surgery did not go well, you know. And Sadly, that's us trying to repair our life, trying to fix the sin in our life. It won't be fixed. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. It's a tar baby that just, you stick to it worse and worse, and there's sin and death. It is the grace of God. It is the Spirit of God that sets us free. It is the mercy of Christ that sets us free. And so... It says here that there is freedom where the Spirit is in verse 17. And that means freedom from our uh, hardness of heart. Freedom from this veil covering us. So that now, by His grace, we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. We're really seeing the glory of the Lord because He has begun to inscribe that glory on our hearts. And we have begun to love that glory. So that expresses the great need that we have of this change that much of this chapter is is speaking of. But then there's this process that we see. We are being transformed, so there's this continual process, and we are transformed because we are seeing the glory of the Lord. And it says, as we're we're transformed into that image that we are beholding, right? Right? So we're seeing his glory, and that glory is changing us so that we're beginning to take on that glory. It is an amazing thing that he can say of you and me right now that glory is marking our life. But that's that's what he says. Now, where is the glory to be seen? Where do we behold it? Well, we've seen that, haven't we, in verse 4. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so, in the gospel, we see this glory of Christ displayed to us. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3, 8, where he says, uh, he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, that's what I preach. That's the fundamental message, the unsearchable riches of Christ, okay? Or here, the glory of Christ is what I preach, Then he gets more specific in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and 2, where he says, I preach Christ and him crucified, or I preach the cross. In fact, he says, this is basically what I preach, Christ and the cross, as we basically end every sermon with Christ and the cross, right, in the Lord's Supper. So this is the sum and substance of the gospel, holding forth the fact that the eternal God took upon himself flesh and sacrificed himself, bearing away our punishment and taking us from death to life. So Henry was changed by being wounded. We're changed by God being wounded. We're changed because God came and allowed himself to be wounded on our behalf. That's what takes us from death to life. And we see this, Lord. We see this sacrificial love and we explore all the ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament display the beauty and glory of this God who would give his own son up for us. And we begin to be changed into that image. We saw this a couple of weeks ago later in this same uh, letter in chapter 5 where he says now it is this love displayed in the gospel that now controls us. It governs us. We've seen that love, we've seen the unveiling of a God who would love us in Christ Jesus, a God who would sacrifice himself in this way, and that love now controls us. It runs us. And he says in the next verse, you can see it right there in verse 15, he died, he was wounded so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would live for him who died for us. You see, there's the death of your old life, the resurrection to a new life. That you are not ever going to be what you were, living for yourself. But now you're going to be spending yourself more and more ways to give yourself away to others and to give yourself up to God. And so our glory now, our glory is sacrificial love. And one of the things Paul is talking about throughout this whole letter, and we don't have time, of course, to follow all the the argument, but Paul is being attacked because he doesn't have razzmatazz. You know, he's not not showy. He doesn't have this great oratory. Uh, He doesn't have this great uh, appearance. He's not your guy that's, you know, dressed to the hilt and... Powerful and mover, shaker kind of guy that you just think, golly, what a powerful personality. People said, this is an apostle? What? And Paul's using this contrast of Old and New Testament to show you've got to fix your eyes on what real glory is. Because this glory that attached to the Old Testament, the glory of the mountain, the glory of separating the uh, Red Sea, the glory of manna and all these kind of things, he says, you know what? That has no glory compared to the present glory. You think, wow, what is the present glory? It must be even bigger and more glorious and amazing. You know what's going to happen? He says, here's the new glory, dying to yourself and spending yourself for others. How about that for glory? That's the glory that Christ showed us. As he said, in in, uh, coming up to his own death, he said, now God will be glorified. Now glory will break out in my death as I demonstrate who God really is, that he's a God who would sacrifice himself for, uh, for others. And brothers and sisters, that's the glory that we are called to. And it's the glory... And now I want to move to the final communica- or the, the final the climax, or consummation of our glory, because though we, we start not looking very much like Christ, I love what one commentator says. He said, "The first scarce discernible resemblance."? Okay? <laughs> the first scarce re- uh, uh, discernible resemblance to Christ." Okay? That's where we start when he begins to inscribe our hearts. But we end with full conformity to his character, the full beauty of his character. And we begin to want to live out this hero life of glory, of self-sacrifice. That's like our Lord, whose glory has broken in upon us in his sacrifice. And... Our latter end of being glorified with him shows what, what God thinks of this sacrificial love. You see, in Philippians 2, we read where Christ did not hold equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't just hold on his own prerogatives and hold on to his own power and he's not going to give it away or help anybody with it. But he actually displayed the fact that he really was God because... He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. And then I love this word that comes next. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Why did he get the name that is above every name? Because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Otherwise, he would not be worthy of... Of the name that is above every name. He would not be worthy of the name that says this one exhibited the character of God. And in heaven, he is celebrated in that way. In uh, Revelation chapter 5, he was talking about who's worthy to open the scrolls. And the scroll meant who's going to govern history. Okay, shorthand for what was going on. And John's up there. He's having this vision. One of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So he hears about the lion of Judah. And he's filled, of course, with expectation. And he turns and he sees a lamb. Isn't that marvelous? Who is the kingly lion? He's the lamb. And he's the lion because he's the lamb. You see? He's the kingly lion because he's the gracious lamb. And you see, if we're going to be made kings and queens one day to rule the new heavens and the new earth, which we're told, do you know what? Every single one of those kings and queens will have been a gracious, humble, self, self-sacrificing self person to some degree. That's what royalty looks like in this world. That's what glory looks like. No matter what anybody says, and no matter what health and wealth cries about, you've got to have all this stuff, and your life's going to turn out well, tell that to the martyrs. Tell that to the people who've had their heads cut off. Glory is sacrificing yourself for others. That's the glory of true kingship and royalty. The future kings and queens walk after the pattern of Jesus. And it means in this life, as Jesus said in John 15, talking about that sacrificial love in particular, saying, here's the one commandment. The commandment, you love as I've loved you. That means sacrificial love, okay? He says, I've told you these things so that my joy would be in you and your joy will be full. You see, the kings and queens of this world who walk in sacrificial love are the happiest, the genuinely happiest people, They're full of the rich joy that Christ himself knows in his sacrificial love. And in that final day, we will experience a glory that is unimaginable. We're told in Romans 8 that he predestined us to finally be conformed to that glory. We're told in Philippians 3 that he will come and conform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his body of glory. We're told in Colossians 3 that we will appear with him in glory. We're told in 2 Thessalonians, we will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, which sounds blasphemous to me, but that's what it says. Okay? It doesn't mean his divine glory. It means his human glory. He wins it for us and he shares it lavishly with us. And though we will never be perfect, and though we struggle so every single day to live sacrificially, we struggle with it in our marriages, we struggle with it with our children, our friends, we struggle with it in everywhere you look. We're not a perfect bunch of people. But we are set, we are growing, we're going from glory to glory. And that little bit of discernible resemblance, God calls glory. And you're going to go from glory to glory until finally you'll be perfected in character. And then your outward body will be a symbol of that inward beauty that's been perfected. So your body will be glorious. And he says, The meek will inherit the earth. He says, All things are yours life, death, now, the future, the world. It's all yours. You will judge angels, you will rule the nations. How can that be? It's because and only because he has inscribed on our hearts something of the glory of Christ. And we have begun to taste it, love it, and follow it and be like that. As future kings and queens, we walk in humility and love and self-sacrifice. That, brothers and sisters, is your glory. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we praise you that you would rescue us in such a way. Look where you find us with defaced hearts inscribed with sin. And we're helpless and we're blind and we, there's a veil and we can't even see your beauty and glory. But you inscribe it into our hearts. You shine into our hearts the beauty of Christ. And it first touches us and changes us. We're we're amazed that you would love me. How could you love me? How could you love me so much that we'd give your son? And then, as Paul says, he prays that the Spirit will work in our inner man so that we with all the saints will know the height and width and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the ongoing quest of the Spirit working within us to continually unveil the glory of Christ's love to us. And Lord, you will finish it in that last day because, as John says, in that day we will see him as he is and we will, become, we will be like him the cause will see him as he is. Oh, Lord, it is transformation by vision and a transformation in the end by the full vision of his glory and beauty. How will it be, Lord? How amazing will it be that we ourselves will know what it is to love perfectly and be loved perfectly by one another forever and ever, as we live out our new life in a new world. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a salvation, one at such a cost. We praise you, O oh Savior. Amen.